Hey, 6 o'clock on a Wednesday. And that means it's time for the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. I am glad to be here. Hey, hey, Martin's at the control. Is that opening a little too ominous for people, you think? No, I don't think. I think it's perfect, actually. Okay. Yeah, right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right. I knew I liked you for a reason. <laughs> We're glad you're with us on this Wednesday. Man, summer has gone by fast. I was talking to somebody earlier today. First of all, we haven't had, and I'm not saying I wish we did, although I know people who do say this. Um, we haven't had, like, those prolonged stretches of 90-degree days, like when you go through, like, five days when the, the high temperature is, like, 96. Last summer was like that quite a bit. Haven't gone through that this particular summer. And uh, for whatever, knock wood or whatever, it was kind of warm today, but it was also a little breezy at least where I was, so it wasn't, you know, like oppressively hot and humid. It's just, a, they're saying, however, and I, you heard it here first, that we're in for one cold, cruel winter. That's right, a cold, cruel, or should I say, cruel winter. So get ready, batten down the hatches. Buy yourself some long underwear or whatever you need to do because it's coming. Not now, but it's coming and coming soon. Labor Day's next Monday, y'all. And then it's back to whatever normal grindstone most of y'all do. Because I'll tell you, last few days, haven't been as many people on public transit. You could actually find a seat. Uh, and we're going to talk about public transit a little later on because uh, something really whack happened with public transit. But that's not our To the Ridiculous story, which is at the end of the show. For those of you who are with us for the first time, let me, let me explain a little bit about how this show runs. We have 10 top stories of varying import, uh, varying, uh, uh, you know, uh, places, local, national, international. I pick them. You may quibble with what I pick, but what the heck? I picked them. And then we have a lead story. Today, the lead story is our distinguished president, Barack Obama, and how much criticism he's come in for lately. And we're going to have a very distinguished person who will be joining us uh, via telephone. She's a reporter for the Washington Post. Her name is Nia Malika Henderson, and she's brilliant. So she's going to tell us what's up with Barack Obama. But we have a bunch of other things to go through first. Uh, let me say rest in peace to Lord Attenborough, who passed away recently at the age of 90. Lord Attenborough, Richard Attenborough, was an extraordinary actor, an extraordinary director. He directed Gandhi, a seminal film from back in the day. Uh, and he was humanitarian. He spoke up and put his reputation on the line in opposition to apartheid in South Africa. He spoke for the voiceless, not just in England, where he's from, but from around the world. And he's to be lauded and hopefully remembered and recognized for what he did on behalf of humanity. A big, big, big get well soon to the iconic New York One anchor person, Roma Tori. Roma Tori disclosed yesterday that she has colon cancer and she will be undergoing surgery tomorrow 
I believe, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. They say, the reports that I saw say that they think they can get rid of the cancer. And that's always a good thing. Roman Tory is a fantastic anchor person. She's part of New York's DNA. She's been around, I think, for like 25 years. Her mother, by the way, worked for an old newspaper called the New York Herald Tribune. And her mother went to jail. That's right, the joint, rather than give up a source. So best wishes, and we're praying for the swift recovery of Roma Tory. Michael Brown was laid to rest on Monday. Reverend Al Sharpton was there. Thousands of mourners were there. So many, in fact, that they couldn't fit everybody in the church. And they picked the church because it held like 2,500 people, another 2,000 people who were outside and couldn't get in. Reverend Sharpton said, justice is going to come. He said this three times. Justice is going to come. I wouldn't necessarily, I know Al Sharpton for a very long time. And I wouldn't necessarily want to part company with him about justice for Michael Brown. But I got to tell you, I'm not convinced that the stars are in proper alignment, that circumstances will dictate, even with the FBI and the Justice Department doing their separate civil rights investigations, that the police officer, Wilson, will spend a day in jail. I'm not sure. They've had a couple of rallies to back him out there, but that's not the reason why I don't think he's going to do any time. And if you disagree with me, please call me, won't you? 888-874-4888. Now, usually y'all wait until after the guest is gone before you call. Here's a chance for you to call early. And you don't have to talk about Michael Moore. You can talk about whatever's on your mind. But our call-in number here at prn.fm is 888-874-4888. Give us a call. Tell me whether or not you think that justice will come in the case of Michael Brown. I am not so sure. I'm just not. Now, Martin, you know, sometimes, and my wife always yells at me about this. Something will pop into my head while I'm talking about something completely different. And I feel like I want to go out and riff about that, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not. Uh, because I, I wanted to talk a little bit about progressive talk radio, but we'll get into that a little bit later on, okay? Because I'm on the progressive radio network, the vanguard of progressive talk in the known universe, and maybe even in the unknown universe at this point. Seven minutes past the hour of six. Uh, I, I, I am, I'm not sure about Michael Brown, and I'm not sure about justice in the Eric Garner case either. Big rally, March, over the weekend, Saturday, on Staten Island. Again, led by the Reverend Al Sharpton. And folk out there, and from all over the tri-state area, by the way, it wasn't just people from Staten Island that came out there to rally, are demanding justice in this case too, which like the Michael Brown case, would involve criminally charging a police officer. 
More on that shortly, because we had the head of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. Martin, how best to put this? Acting a fool? <laughs> how about that? The man was acting a fool. But we'll get into that a little bit later on. Now, one of the things that I find amazing about this city, amazing, is that we generally look at ourselves as you know, relatively progressive people. And maybe, to an extent, we are. But if you read the media in the run-up to the march on Staten Island, you would have thought Al Sharpton was going to lead a marauding band of gangsters and thugs out there to destroy everything in Tompkinsville. That's how they covered it. I ain't lying. I can show you the print. Yeah, well, what? See, and what's interesting about this is that the people who opposed that march never articulate that their opposition runs counter to a basic American right. I'll repeat that. A basic American right. The right to peacefully protest for redress of grievances. That's a right. We all have it. Martin don't like me. He can put a picket sign downstairs. Mark Riley ain't nothing. That's true. <laughs> That's his right. Oh, uh, by the way, if, if you really do not like me, <laughs> you don't have no, to. You're a great guy. You're a great no, guy. not you. I'm talking about somebody who's listening. No, I, see, nowhere do you read in media that the people who opposed that march on Staten Island, which, by the way, no one was arrested, perfectly peaceful mainly because they planned it in advance to be that way. You know, they actually consorted with the police. That's right. Al Sharpton and them. And because I know him for a long time, I know that most, if not all, of the marches he's a part of. He, he talks to the cops beforehand. That's why people don't end up getting locked up en masse at an Al Sharpton demonstration or an Al Sharpton-led demonstration. He ain't crazy. Now, if there's going to be civil disobedience like there was in Diallo, that's different. They still planned that. But back to the business at hand. What excuse do people have for abrogating the right of other citizens to peacefully protest? What is your excuse for that? Oh, the businesses are going to take a hit. Businesses take a hit during the marathon. Y'all ain't complaining about that. When they talked about marching over the Verrazano Bridge, where does the marathon start? Uh, the Verrazano Bridge. I'm I'm just saying, you know. So and, and you know Mayor De Blasio, who did not attend the march, there were a bunch of electeds that did. And I don't know, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, well, you know, if you didn't attend the march, you're a bootlicking Uncle Tom. I I don't believe that. You either do or you don't. But Mayor De Blasio said that, you know, he was glad the march was peaceful. He said New York City was a beacon of the right way to do things. The march was clearly an example of police and protesters finding a way to get things done in a positive democratic fashion. Yep, that's what it was. That's what it was. And in 
Ferguson, Missouri, and on Staten Island. You know, because, Martin, they're taking the Klieg lights down. The media's turning off the cameras. All right? Unless they're back out in the street again, the media's going to turn down the cameras. That's how I've seen literally dozens of these kinds of things. Protests, somebody gets killed, whether it's a cop, you know, cop kills them or somebody else kills them under strange circumstances or circumstances that outrage a community. And there's some short-term anger. People are out in the street. People in Ferguson were out in the street for a long time. But eventually, the cameras go, the lights dim down, and the grim business of finding out whether or not anybody's going to face justice in either of these two uh, cases, that moves forward. I hope it turns out differently than I think it will. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just old and cynical. Is that what it is, Martin? Old age and cynicism? No, just realistic. Yeah, just realistic. And it saddens me to say that that's realistic. Saddens me. 888-874-4888 is our number. Now, before we talk to Nia Malika Henderson about Barack Obama, I have to tell you, that what's going on in Atlantic City, New Jersey, pains me. Pains me a great deal. And let me say at the outset, I don't gamble. All right? The only time, Martin, the only time I gambled, right, I was in Vegas once. At a, a, a gathering, had nothing to do with gambling, right? A friend of mine is sitting there. He's playing one of them one-armed bandits. Right. And I'm looking at him. Yeah, go ahead, man. Go ahead, fool. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Right. So he has to go to the bathroom. So he gives me a roll of quarters and keep playing for me until I get back. I said, OK, fine. Not a problem. Not that I, you know, don't make me no never mind. So I put a couple of quarters in it and all of a sudden, but a bunch of quarters gush out of the machine. Like about $50 worth or something. You know, not, not a princely's. I didn't hit no big jackpot, you understand. But a little bit of money. And when he came back out of the bathroom, I you know, scooped up the court and said, here, man, you won this. And he said to me, no, no, no. That's your money. You pull the handle. I may have given you the quarter, but you pulled the handle, so it's yours. So that's the only time I ever gambled in my life, like in a casino, all right? And I've been in a bunch of casinos. I just walk past and look at these people. But there are now three casinos in Atlantic City. They're getting ready to shut down very, very shortly. Uh... The Ravel, which, by the way, was supposed to be like this multi-billion dollar operation, supposed to be state-of-the-art, but closing after the Labor Day weekend. Trump Plaza. And listen, uh, I don't shed any tears for anything of Donald Trump's that closes. <laughs> okay? I just don't. I don't like the guy. I don't like his politics. I don't like his attitude. F him. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> But anyway, he probably doesn't have anything to do with Trump Plaza. He probably sold it off, but he kept his name on it. Okay. And Showboat is closing on Sunday, the day before Ravel. Or a couple days uh, before Ravel. 
This will put 6,500 casino workers out of a gig. That's right, 6,500 casino workers out of a job. Some of these people have been working in casinos for like a quarter of a century. Remember that, you know, Atlantic City was back in the day when they, you know, allowed casino gambling. This was supposed to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for Atlantic City. You know, Atlantic City was synonymous with gambling. It was going to be Vegas East. All those little old ladies jumping on buses riding down there. Well, times change. Other states decided to get in on what Atlantic City was doing. Pennsylvania, Delaware, some of these other places. They opened newer casinos. More amenable casinos. Casinos with more amenities. And next thing you know, the casinos in Atlantic City aren't doing so well. Now, that's one-fourth, that's 6,500, Martin, one-fourth of all the casino workers in the state of New Jersey. One-fourth. One out of every four. Atlantic City already has an unemployment rate of 13%. Atlantic County has the highest unemployment rate of any county in the state of New Jersey. And now this. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've worked somewhere for a long time and you've always felt your gig was secure, and one day they call you in and say, we're shutting down, it is the most disconcerting situation that you can experience. And those of you, I know some of you who are listening to me have experienced this. Some of these folks, they'll get 26 weeks of unemployment. And then what? Many of these workers have been living paycheck to paycheck. Some of them rely on tips and the severance that they are offering at these casinos. And it's not all that much. Is based on their $9.30 an hour wage. I think they get like eight weeks. Not a lot to last. Some of these people are in their 60s, 70s. It means it's not going to be easy to find. You, you know, you imagine being a 70-something-year-old person, you're out looking for work, and you're competing with 25- and 30-year-olds. They're trying to do some stuff to retrain people to do different things. They're advising people to be prepared to drive a hundred some odd miles away from home to maybe try and get a job at one of the other casinos, which by the way, in fairness are recruiting some of the folks that are getting laid off. But it is a tremendous, where's the gas going to come from to take somebody 150 miles one way every day, five days a week. I'm just saying 6,500 workers. Now, CN, uh, not CNN, Turner Broadcasting laying off 550. And in the media world, they seem uh, this is supposed to be the end of the world. In this case, it's the end of the world for some people. I hope the folks that do get laid off keep their heads up. And I hope they find other work with all deliberate speed. We're going to be talking to Nia Malika Henderson from the Washington Post. I think it's about time. I told her we'd be calling her about now. 
because we're going to talk a little bit about President Barack Obama. A guy who over the last couple of weeks has not been able to catch a break. I don't know whether it's like bad optics or, you know, I don't know what it is. But he hasn't been able to catch a break. So we're going to talk with Nia about how big the criticism or how large the criticism looms in D.C. Now, in fairness, Barack Obama got reelected in She's on. 2000, uh, 2011, 2012. So maybe he doesn't care what the critics think. But then again, maybe he does. It's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones from the Washington Post, Ms. Nia Malika Henderson. How you doing, my friend? Hey there, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Welcome to the Mark Riley Show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, you're in D.C. You're in the belly of the beast. You're inside the beltway, right? Barack Obama <laughs> took it on the chin over what seemed to be what, you know, people seem to describe it as a very detached attitude in the wake of the brutal, barbaric murder of journalist James Foley. Uh, you're a reporter, so I'm not going to ask whether people have a point about that, but how is that playing inside the Beltway? You know, it's not playing well inside the Beltway, and these are folks, uh, you know, who, who've covered this president and been a part of the chatter uh, around his uh, sort of approach to these issues, whether or not uh, we see him as being... Uh, enough, uh, hands-on enough in terms of his approach, emotional enough. You know, folks uh, sort of refer to him as Spock, right, from from Star Trek in oh, terms wow. of his, his, his approach to some of these issues. And I think when he was on vacation, there was that uh, striking contrast between, you know, his, his, his statements about Foley uh, and the murder of Foley and it, it was a heartbreaking, uh, you know, event, obviously, and, and Obama said, you know, we'll use the weight of, of the government and the army and, and the military to go after these guys and, and find them, no matter how long it takes, and so there was that, uh, and then, you know, five minutes later, he's on the golf course, and, you know, this is something that we've covered and we've chatted about. I think, you know, the real question is whether or not people outside the Beltway uh, actually, you know, put these things together and are watching as closely as we are here. And that's, you know, that's not clear to me whether or not, because I'm so, you know, spend my days here in the Beltway and talking to folks in the Beltway. But, you know, whether or not people outside of, you know, sort of the New York and and, uh, D.C. corridor see this president uh, as somebody who's hands-on or somebody who who seems checked out, uh, you know, I think that's going to come up over these next weeks in terms of these midterms and how people think uh, he's leading and whether or not they want to give you know keep giving the keys back to the Democrats. Now, that's an interesting point because I assume inside the Beltway, any negativity surrounding this president has almost instant blowback in these midterm elections. Is that how it's looking? Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's right. I mean, there's there's sort of an instant connection between uh, the, the the conversations we have and, and and what we see this president, whether or not uh, he he seems engaged. We obviously are talking to his aides and talking to other Democrats and Republicans uh, about how uh, how how he's viewed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the immediate connection is is to is to the the midterms and and whether or not uh, he's going to be a drag on these folks in these very tough races um, or whether he's he's going to be able to elevate their chances of of keeping the Senate, the Democrats. Uh, You know, all the polls at this point seem to suggest that the Republicans are in a pretty good position Mm -hmm. 
for taking over uh, the Senate. I think one of the things that's going to happen over the next weeks is he's going to make some major moves on a number of things, one of which is immigration reform and then the decision around whether or not to launch strikes uh, in Syria to go after ISIS. Yeah, and and he, he will, I assume, use his executive power in many of these cases, no? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and what does that do? What does that do for House Republicans who've already uh, moved to sue this president and have, have talked, uh, at least a handful of them have talked about uh, impeachment uh, and calling the president lawless? And, and one wonders what these moves, if he moves uh, by executive action to essentially legalize, you know, millions of of, of these folks who are in this country. Uh, what does that What does that do? Some Democrats don't want him to do it because, again, they're in these tough races in states like Louisiana and in Arkansas and North Carolina. Uh, they sort of want him to wait. Um, but it looks like at least all the signs we're getting from the White House is that this is something he wants to do before election day in the next in the next weeks even. Now, uh, are congressional Democrats openly critical of this president? I mean, you know, I, yeah, not really. I mean, it, it, privately they are. Pri- you know, some of them are uh, openly critical. You know, they get home in their, their home states and, and their uh, approach to their relationship with the president or their framing of their relationship with the president is, you know, they need to be back in Washington uh, so they can tell the president uh, to do what they feel like needs to be done on any number of issues, whether it's, you know, veterans issues or immigration reform. So it, it does feel like they are trying to distance themselves from the president uh, as they run in these states where the president's approval ratings are very, very low. Um, you take even a state like New Hampshire, where Gene Shaheen is running against Scott Brown. Recent polls out of that state seem to suggest it's a really, really tight race. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, that wow. was the latest poll out of there. And, and some people say, well, they, maybe this is an outlier because she had been she'd been up uh, before in these polls, and you know, she's like a, a, a household name, obviously, in in, in New Hampshire. Um, in, in Scott Brown is a bit of an interloper because he's not really from New Hampshire. Um, but, yeah, and, and you, you look at that poll, and, and if it's to be believed, then it's another reason for Democrats to really be worried about a wave election. Our guest is Nia Malika Henderson from The Washington Post. We're really glad that she's with us this evening. Nia, uh, let me ask you, what do you think uh, the president's critics think he should have done? In the wake of James Foley, I mean, he gave a, a, a speech that was apparently relatively well received. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they saying then that he should have canceled the round of golf? I understand Alonzo Mourning was with yeah. him, you know, or should he have flown back to D.C.? What yeah. do his critics think he should have done differently? Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe if you cancel the round of golf, he's golfed a whole heck of a lot uh, during his vacation uh, and with Alonzo Mourning, who I guess was vacationing at the same time on, on Martha's Vineyard. Some people say he should have canceled that round, maybe come back. Uh, but, but uh, you know, again, this has been a criticism of this president almost every summer in August when he goes to Martha's Vineyard. It's either, I mean, I, he didn't go uh, in, in 2012, but every year uh, since then he has gone, and it's all about, you know, he seems checked out. Why is he vacationing with the fancy folks in Martha's Vineyard? Why is he paying so much for his rental property? Uh, why is he golfing so much? So that's, you know, that's just part of the conversation that always goes on. And in some ways it went on, too, with, with George Bush. And, and yeah. the response is, listen, presidents need 
breaks too, and, and if they want to be out on the golf course for um, for hours at a time, uh, you know, the White House is always traveling with them no matter where they are. Um, and given all the challenges facing the country, you, you probably want to have uh, the president have a couple of, uh, you know, days where he's able to relax. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, criticism from the John Boehner's of the world and, and, and you know, congressional Republicans, that's one thing. But uh, the president was also lambasted in an interview, I believe, in Salon by Professor Cornell West. Now, it's not the first time, right. to be fair. Uh, but but the, the, do you think that, that Cornell, and I know him, too. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's a good guy. Uh, I disagree with him about some of what he says about the president. But uh, it, does he get traction in, in calling uh, President Obama uh, what did he call him? Uh, Kenny G in brownface? Oh, that's, right. <laughs> like that. that's, right. that's pretty low, right? <laughs> it's so funny because, uh, you know, and Cornel West has been a long time and loud uh, critic of this president from way back. He and Tava Smiley and the president uh, very much in uh, his aides uh, pretty much dismissed. Cornell West as a hater, right? Mm-hmm. And so I read that that interview too, and I think it was with Thomas Frank. Yeah. But what is interesting, though, is there does seem to be other people criticizing him who hadn't before, the longtime backers of, of him, people like Michael Eric Dyson. I think the White House worries when they see people like that who do have a platform and some credibility uh, mm-hmm. with with the president's supporters because they've been presidents, uh, the president's supporters as well. Um, and of course, Reverend Sharp. Uh, is on a different side of this. I actually talked to Reverend Sharpton uh, yesterday, not mm-hmm. even about, a little bit about Cornel West and a little bit about um, Michael Eric Dyson. And he said, you know, sort of the difference between somebody like Michael Eric Dyson and Cornel West is that at least Michael Eric Dyson isn't so personal, right? It, he, it's not a real personal attack on Obama's character when he starts to criticize him in the way that it seems like Cornell wants uh, wants to do. So I, I think for Cornell West, it, it is. I think most people think that he's a bit of a hater. I think the White House does worry more about people like Michael Eric Dyson. And one of the things around this, I know we're talking about Foley. Uh, Michael Eric Dyson has been talking about Ferguson. One of the things I know the White House has been doing, you know, almost every other day, is reaching out to these folks, folks like Michael Eric Dyson, people in the civil rights community uh, in, in, in the form of a conference call. They had a conference call uh, earlier this week, like a thousand people on it, where they're really trying to update folks on this Justice Department investigation uh, in Ferguson and, and mm-hmm. tamp down on, on what they saw at some point as a, a bit of critici- criticism from uh, African Americans, who of course have been so supportive of this president uh, over his handling of Ferguson. Now there seems to be uh, a sense among most folks that the way he's handled it, sending Holder down there, sending White House aides to the funeral, uh, ultimately struck the right balance. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, I don't know if you've heard the same things I've heard, but I have heard in the past that part of Cornell West's problem with Barack Obama is, in fact, personal. Now, I'm not going to go into <laughs> the incident that I heard. Something about tickets to the graduation uh, uh, yeah, or that's something? The, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Apparently, he had gone to a hotel. I, I, I don't know whether it's true because I've never confirmed this with Cornell, but he right. apparently went 
to a hotel in D.C., and the guy who took his bags had tickets to the inauguration, and Cornell hadn't gotten any. Right. And, and he, yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- that was uh, a, a, apparently a bone of contention for the brother, if you yes. know what I mean. Yes, and one he has not forgotten, and he will tell anybody far and wide about this uh, and tell you how many uh, events he held in 2008 supporting yeah. the yeah. president and, and the disappointment with uh, the president over the inauguration and then subsequent disappointment. I do think, though, and uh, Cornelius is sort of a, a separate part of this, but he is emblematic of this, this idea of who this president is. Is he progressive enough for most people? Is he uh, progressive in the way that people thought he was going to be? Or has he ended up being more of a centrist and more of a moderate? Uh, and I think moving forward to 2016, you know, this idea of whether or not the president is a progressive uh, really uh, might matter for Hillary Clinton in terms of yeah. if she runs, do people see her uh, as more of a moderate? And they say, well, you know, we really want a real progressive this time uh, because maybe Obama wasn't uh, wasn't as progressive uh, enough on some of these issues. Of course, he's been stymied by a, a, a Congress that doesn't Congress. want to give him the time of day. Right. Yeah. right. But, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I thought that Barack Obama was going to be a pretty progressive guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was disabused of that notion the night he gave his acceptance speech in Denver in 2008. And you know who told me? Barack Obama ain't going to end up being no progressive. It was Chuck D. from Public Enemy. Chuck D. Chuck D. Chuck, Chuck, I, I know Chuck for a long time. We're good friends. Yeah. And I did an interview with him just before the president gave his speech. And Chuck said, look, those people who think Barack Obama is going to save black people, you're crazy. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, and he wasn't saying it, like, with vitriol. Right. He was really kind of sort of being more of a realist. Yeah. And he yep. said, you know, the way this country functions, you can't expect a Barack Obama to be as progressive as black people, as progressive white people, as progressive Latinos think or want him to be. He's going to disappoint people. And well, yeah, that's interesting. Well, he he should have told everybody that because uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of disappointed folks in terms of how uh, how they feel like Obama has done. Yeah, uh, and and people, you know, famous people and, and not so famous people. Uh, but yeah, it looks like Chuck D was a, was a real uh, a realist going in. Final quick question, Neil. Um Are you you know there was a time, and I noticed you know being on the radio. If you were black and you criticized Barack Obama, people would come down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, is yeah. it still like that, though? You know, it it is, but not as much because you know I write things that are critical of the president, and and uh, and before say those critical things on air, whatever it is, uh, and you know before I would just get you know so much blowback on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, but now it seems like it, it's changed a bit. You don't get as much. Uh, criticism when when you do criticize the president and and it, it seems like it's probably you know I'm a reporter and it's different and and it's probably that way for for regular people too I mean how is it if you criticize the president how is it for you do people come down on you yeah they do I mean yeah. look I, yeah. I say out front yeah. that there are areas I agree with them on right and there are areas I don't and, yeah. and I'm yeah. not going to hold my tongue yeah uh and say I agree with him about something I just I, yeah. I think he's botched immigration quite frankly hmm. uh I don't think he's done a great job on that yeah. Yeah. uh in terms of 
amping down America's war machine. I don't think he's done a great job about that either. Right, right. You know, I mean, but maybe he can, you know. I know, I know. You know I, yeah. I mean, look, he's a politician right. on top of everything else. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and, but, you know, he sort of ran as above being I know. a politician, right? Um, so, but that was an approach to his campaign, and it worked. And um, But, yeah, it'll be interesting these next uh you know, crucial weeks in terms of what he does about ISIS, what he does on immigration reform, and then beyond that, you know, what he does on some of the issues that have emerged out of Ferguson yeah. uh, as well. I mean, he's definitely looking at his legacy, and he knows part of that legacy is going to be all the issues you talked about, immigration reform and uh, these wars overseas, uh, and of course, race as well. Absolutely. Nia Malika Henderson, as always, a joy to talk with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Nia Malika Henderson, reporter with the Washington Post. She's a brilliant writer, brilliant reporter, and we're glad she's with us here on PRN.FM. This is the Mark Riley Show. Give us a call. You can talk about what you don't have to talk about Barack Obama. Maybe you think he's a bootlicking Uncle Tom like Cornell does. (laughs) 888-874-4888. Eight, eight. Look, I, I'm being facetious here. I don't think he's a bootlicking Uncle Tom. I, you know, uh, there are people I know that think so, but that's a whole other discussion for another day. Uh, you can talk about that. You can talk about Ferguson. You can talk about Staten Island. Or if you want, you can talk about Ed Mullins. You know who Ed Mullins is? Hey, Martin, you know who Ed Mullins is? Heard of the name, not too familiar, but you can All right, definitely he's the, give me some He's info. the president of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. He's the... Cl- <laughs> I don't want to call him a clown, but he's the guy who sent a letter to the Democratic National Committee saying, don't bring the 2016 convention to Brooklyn. I repeat, don't bring the 2016 convention to Brooklyn. Now, this is some weeks after every politician in New York tried to woo the DNC to come to Brooklyn. Now, Ed Mullins says the city's going backward to the bad old days of high crime, danger-infested public spaces, and families that walk our streets worried for their safety. He says the city's being overrun by squeegee people. He must, be, he must read the New York Post. <laughs> squeegee people and other panhandlers. With shootings on the rise and morale among police officers flagging. So saith Ed Mullins, who represents sergeants. Not Everybody, and by the way, it was interesting, Pat Lynch from the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, no anti-police guy, did not sign on to this letter. All right. Uh, Bill de Blasio was not happy. Eric Adams, former state senator, former cop, and current borough president of Brooklyn, went off. Okay. He was not happy about this. And Ed Mullins, you know, does some interviews today. He says, well, I wasn't really talking about not having them come here. Well, what did you say, chump? You said they should look elsewhere. It's, uh, it's amazing. Now, you can throw numbers at guys like Ed Mullins, but they don't really matter. And we should be clear, Ed Mullins is representing his members, his union members. That's what he gets paid to do. And if he doesn't advocate for his members, he's going to be the former president of the Sergeant's Benevolent Association. That's the way these things work. I understand. And, you know, within certain frameworks, you can be as strident as you want to be. 
But Martin, here's something Ed Mullins didn't take into account. And I'm going to be the one to bring this up, okay? Ten years ago, the Republicans came to New York City. They came to the Garden. I know. I was there. All right? You know how much that cost the city? I know they made some money, but that money they made was debited $18 million. You know why? Because the city had to settle a number, a a pretty large number, of false arrest lawsuits. Okay? Now, who do you think arrested all those people? (laughs) And by the way, warehoused them in the tow pound on the far west side of Manhattan. Who do you think arrested them? Was it the citizens of New York? Were there thousands of citizens arrested? Or was it the police? That was not the NYPD's finest hour. And I am not a basher of cops. I can't be a basher of cops. Cops have played a very central role in my life from the time I was a young person. So I'm not bashing cops. But when you shoot your mouth off about how bad things are and how crime-infested New York is, and we're sliding back into this and this and this and squeegee people and blah, 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 blah. Remember, it was some of your members that cost the city 18 million big ones, pal. Sorry to bring up inconvenient truths here, but that's the deal, all right? That is the deal. And, you know, again... I understand Ed Mullen standing up for his members. I really do. I just think he, he was wrong in standing up for his members in this way. 888-874-4888 is our number. You want to talk about Mullins, Obama, Michael Brown, Eric Garner? Those 6,500 casino workers that are about to lose their gigs in Jersey? Give me a call. 888-874-4888. This is the Progressive Radio Network. Now I can talk about Progressive Talk Radio. Right, Martin? It's your cue. Go ahead. (laughs) Hey, I'm gonna. All right. Um, Radio is going through terrestrial radio. When I say terrestrial, I'm talking about the ones on the AM and FM dial. They're going through a metamorphosis. In my judgment, it's not a great (laughs) metamorphosis. Okay, it's just not. Formats are cookie cutter. You know, I read the radio trades. And, you know, it's like, try one. If it don't work, get rid of it. Try another one. Everybody loves sports talk now. Traditional talk, not so much. Not even conservative talk. Some of the terrestrial radio stations that used to rule the roost in this town, in New York, are getting half the numbers that they used to get. Half. The two conservative talk stations, actually there are three, but if you take the two biggest ones and combine their numbers, they're not as high as one talk station's numbers were five years ago. People getting old, man. The format's getting old. It's tired. It's fetid. It's messed up. And progressive talk radio terrestrial progressive talk radio should have been able to take advantage but it did not for a number of reasons and i'm not going to cast uh blame or aspersions or whatever 
because I was part of this, and I enjoyed being part of it. But understand that PRN, the Progressive Radio Network, is the wave of the future of progressive talk radio. When they do that commercial that says we're moving forward, they're not playing. Because there's plenty of ground. All that has to happen, and and, and PRN, I don't think even has to do that, because we don't have commercials here. But... And I guess PRN is self-sustaining on account of Gary. No, (laughs) I give him all the credit in the world. He got a studio here. He's got Martin here. He's got Jason, Casey. He's got a radio operation here. He doesn't have to. The man has a whole bunch of other stuff that he does. But he finds it important to have a progressive radio voice when many other people don't think so. So I salute him for that. I'm not trying to brown nose the guy. <laughs> I can't ask him for a raise. <laughs> Me and him, you know, uh, I met him many, many years ago. But understand that progressive talk radio, which a lot of people thought was dead because it died on terrestrial, on the terrestrial side, not just in New York, across the country. Across the country. One minute it's progressive. Three days later, it's conservative or it's sports. Or it's some, you know, advice or, you know, sexual healing talk radio, whatever it is. But the Internet is a heck of a leveler. And as somebody said once, the times, they are a changing. Harriet from Bayside in Queens, how you doing, my friend? Okay, how are you? I'm doing great. Um, You know, I was listening to your conversation about President Barack Obama. Yes, ma'am. Now, you know, I think I told you that during the primary season that I was for Hillary, Mm -hmm. of course I voted for Obama in the general. Yeah. But um, I was saying, what do people see in him? And people thought he was going to be progressive. Does anybody remember the speech that he gave at the Democratic Convention. I do. I was there. Yeah. Well, do you remember when he was talking about red states and blue states? Mm -hmm. So to a lot of people, at least to me, it came across that he would find, try to find consensus. He wanted to find consensus, but the people who oppose him had no interest in uh, consensus. Yeah. But when you're saying, I want to find consensus, that means that you're not going to be progressive. You're going to be an absolute moderate. I agree with you. You're absolutely right. You can't be, I mean, if you're going to be a progressive, then you've got to stand up and be a progressive. That's right. Now, I didn't expect him to be a progressive. Of course, the Republicans are so horrible. But there's something I want to say to all the listeners, to everyone. All right, if you can vote in the primary, if you're eligible to vote in the primary, vote in the primary. If not, vote in November and to be sure to vote because people gave their lives for the right to vote. Couldn't have said it better, Harry. You're absolutely right. Okay, bye-bye. All right, have a great day. Thanks a lot for You too, bye-bye.
Harry from Bayside, one of my favorite, favorite people. We got about 12 minutes left to this show, and I still got a couple of more stories. As long as Martin don't cut the mic, I guess I can keep talking, right? Uh, Burger King, you know, to have it your way, people. The people that have those Whoppers and Whopper Juniors and all that stuff. They agreed yesterday to buy Tim Hortons. Now, I had no idea until I worked in a building over by Penn Station what the deuce Tim Hortons was. It's like a coffee and pastry joint and sandwiches. Uh, They're based in Canada, which apparently, like, they're a really, really big deal in Canada. Uh, It's an $11.4 billion deal. It creates one of the biggest fast, fast food operations in the world. Now, why am I talking about fast food? Y'all don't eat no fast food. I can tell people in this audience, people that listen to the Progressive Radio Network, founded by Gary No, probably don't eat fast food. This is not about what you eat. It's about something called inversion, where a company will buy a company that's out of the country and move the headquarters or move the operations of that company to that foreign country so they can pay less taxes. And there are a lot of people who were like really, really upset with Burger King. By the way, Warren Buffett helped Burger King pull this whole thing off. All right. And they're upset with Burger King saying you're a corporate traitor. You're this, you're that, you're the other. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. The way to stop inversion, and see, this is where politicians are some hypocritical people sometimes, because it's in politicians' hands to stop this from happening. You create regulations, you create legislation that no longer makes it profitable for a Burger King to buy another company and move to Canada or Mexico or wherever. Just make them Make it cost them some money, all right? Don't whine and cry about, oh, you're a traitor. No. Stop them from doing it in the first place. Destroy inversion. Destroy the incentive for inversion. And they'll stop in his tracks. These people follow money. This is $11.4 billion. Tim Hortons and Burger King combined will have 18,000 restaurants And they probably own about five (laughs) because they franchise everything. They'll be in 100 countries and they have 23 billion big ones in annual revenue. Uh, According to the New York Times, they're not even going to save all that much money. Now, here's the thing that I find interesting. Because the New York Times has, like, a list of the different players that were involved in making this deal happen. They talk about Buffett, which is Berkshire Hathaway. They're buying $3 billion worth of preferred shares in the new uh, company. They got nine and a half, Martin, pay attention to this now, nine and a half billion dollars of committed debt financing from J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo. Now... J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo. Are these the same people that, like, helped drive this economy into a ditch just a few years ago? And they just stepping. They just kept on stepping. 
They paid fines. They paid this billions of dollars. And they still got nine billion bucks to pull this off. Uh, Burger King was advised by Lazard, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and the law firms Kirkland and Ellis, Davies, Ward, Phillips, and Weinberg, and Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. They are what you call white shoe law firms. All right? Five minutes, I'm not leaving. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, white shoe law firms. Tim Hortons was advised by Citigroup, the Royal Bank of Canada, and the law firms Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, and, uh, and Osler, Hoskin, and Harcourt. That's the Canadian equivalent of white shoe law firms. Now, here's a question for you. Martin, maybe you can answer this. How much do you think all of these players made from making this happen? The law firms, the banks, the financiers, Warren Buffett. And then ask yourself how much the average employee at Tim Hortons or Burger King makes an hour. All right. Just ask. I'm just saying. (laughs) Think about this. They made millions, and uh, the people that work there. That's right. Mm-hmm. Ain't making squat. And maybe see. Eight dollars an hour, nine maybe, I don't know. <laughs> eight, nine bucks an hour. Yeah. Nine if they're ambitious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> see, and here's the sad thing about that who buys this stuff? Poor and working people buy this stuff. And we buy it in such numbers. That is worth $11.5 billion to somebody. Annual revenue, $23 billion. See, this is what I mean about, you know, folks not really knowing the value of the dollars that they do spend. Because if somebody decided, well, I don't like Burger King no more, decided to go, you know, make burgers at home. Go get the food, go get the hamburger meat from the store, take it home, throw it in the frying pan, pat it down, make your own. Buy some hot hamburger buns. End of Burger King. Make your own coffee. End of Tim Hortons. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not advocating that people destroy corporations. After all, we love corporations. But now I was going to talk. We don't have that much time left. I was going to talk about the poor doors again. I talked about it last week. I ranted. You remember I ranted about this? The podos? Uh, but I'm not going to. The uh, New York Times has a big article about ground zero in the poor door controversy, which is 40 Riverside Boulevard on the west side of Manhattan. And, of course, people that coexist with $25 million condo owners but are only paying 1100 bucks for a two-bedroom, I'll go to the poor door. I don't need no stinking doorman. <laughs> I don't have to go to the gym. I'm only paying 1100 bucks. But I still maintain this is anti-American, it's un-American, and it's anti-New York. And if we're not careful, we're going to see poor doors all over the place. Now, before I leave, because I only got a couple of minutes left here, all right? And, and, and this, this is to the ridiculous. There's apparently uh, a restaurant in the Flatiron District called Prana. You remember that guy that's, that was drunk and came out of there after a brunch 
and said that his father owned half of New York and he'd get somebody to kick, his bu- kick some guy's butt and blah, 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 blah. He was coming out of Prana. Now, Prana apparently has some kind of a uh, ridiculous, like, $45, $45 brunch with all you can drink. And apparently a lot of young millennials are taking full advantage. So much so that I have an article in front of me that says, how drunk is too drunk for 5 p.m. on a Saturday? Uh, apparently, uh, there's a, a, the same guy that took the, uh, the belligerent bruncher, that, that guy that said my father owns half of Manhattan. He's got a double feature now called Prana Brunch Problems Summer 2014 and post-Prana Brunch Street Parties. Uh, and it's not pretty. It's people hurling in the street. You know what hurling means, right? I, I could use a different word, but... Throwing up. <laughs> yeah, puking. <laughs> that's, that's what it's called. Some people relieving themselves in the street because their state of inebriation doesn't allow them, I guess, to do much else. Uh, and now, I, it's either tonight or tomorrow, Prana... Is going. Uh, I think their license, their liquor license, may be up for renewal. Could you imagine a place like this where people go and get stinking drunk, and they have no liquor license, so they have to serve like flavored juices or something? The spokes, uh, 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 the owner Rajiv Sharma, this guy that owns Prana, said he's making changes. He's in, uh, uh, increasing security outside. Do his best to clear the sidewalk faster. We'll continue to have security and management monitor our guests inside and try to prevent them from drinking excessively. Good luck with that. Uh, we've already reduced the brunch reservations by 20% to keep patrons under control. We will look into reducing the hours of serving alcohol during brunch so people will consume less drinks. We will try to set up meetings with our neighbors regularly to discuss their concerns and try our best to resolve them. Spoken like somebody that makes a boatload of money off of booze. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Talk about empty promises. That's going to be as empty as a vodka bottle on at 5 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, actually, tonight is when Prana publicly submits its application to renew their liquor license. Good luck with that. <laughs> All right. Time for me to go. Is it? Yes. You sure? Yes. You're positive. Approaching 59 minutes. Oh, 50, okay. Well, I guess it's time then. Uh, I really like this song. Um, My wife picked it out, though. You know, she's got taste in music, even if she does like Parliament Funkadelic all day. Anyway, thanks to Martin. Thanks to Jason. Thanks to Casey. Thanks to Gary Null. I'm out of here till 6 o'clock next Wednesday. I hope I haven't offended anybody or anything. I, I, I tend to, in my old age, say what's on my mind. Progressive Radio with a twist. Have yourselves a great evening, a great rest of the week, and we will see you next Wednesday, 6 p.m. <laughs>